This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. Allons dansons. Well, I love cubism. It's my favorite style. And I see a cubist painting, I just gotta smile. But there's one painter I'm his biggest fan. He's the father of cubism. His name's Cezanne, Cezanne. Cezanne, Cezanne, the father of cubism. Well, some people say that it was Picasso. Other people claim it was the Curicle. Some people think it was Montigliere. But they're all crazy. It was Paul Cezanne, Cezanne. Cezanne, Cezanne, the father of cubism. When Paul Cezanne sat down to paint a flower on his face, he had to solve one problem three dimensional space. He said, form his content, it's more digital. He was right, now he's Paul Cezanne. Cezanne, 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 the père de cubisme. Oui, oui, hey, Monsieur Kelly, show the guitar. Good morning. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis. Ninety years ago, John Dewey, in his book Art as Experience, gave us a new view on how art works. He removed art from its high pedestal, from the atmosphere of holiness and awe, in which it is usually wrapped, and he pointed to the origins of art in the process of everyday life. Today, will be our first show on cubism, a subject that's almost always given the awe and holiness holiness treatment (laughs) as one of the opening advances into the 20th century, marching arm in arm with Einstein. Difficult to understand and approachable only after a long period of study. You, on the other hand, could walk in tomorrow to the new exhibit at the Baltimore Museum of Art, see the radiant still lifes of Juan Gris, gleaming on the walls, and without any training at all, be through the gates. (laughs) Thank you for that. Good morning, everyone. Our earlier two shows discussed the great Paul Cezanne. Today's show truly deals with a child of the legacy of Paul Cezanne, and there were many artists that took the baton from him in the age of the new modern art in the early 20th century. An artist that was inspired by Paul Cezanne was the Spanish painter Juan Gris. The exhibition titled Color and Illusion, The Still Lives of Juan Gris is currently at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The exhibition goes until January 9th, 2022, and you have ample time to go there. The website is artbma.org. Check out their lovely website. For those of that are not familiar with the Baltimore Museum of Art, it's a great museum and it's easy to get to from D.C. I spent many days there in the 1980s and it was two blocks from my apartment. I found it a great refuge for inspiration, imagination, and learning. It houses great works of art, but is most known for the fabulous Cone Collection. The Cone sisters were great collectors of art and had a friendship with the connection to the art world with Gertrude Stein. They amassed a great collection of Matisse's works as well as other artists. Some years ago, many years ago, I traveled to Europe by myself. 
I'd saved money, $25 a month for my teaching. My parents gave me a URL pass. They had always believed in travel, and off I, off I went without my husband and my kids by myself to see great art. It was very weird. I had no one to talk to, but I did go to the great art museums with purpose, and that was something. Well, I was in Paris outside the Louvre, and a woman came up to me and in French offered me a ticket to the Juan Gris show. I had only a vague idea of what to expect and really no background. I had no sophistication in what he was achieving, no standing on the shoulders of Cezanne, no sense of who followed whom, but they were just so beautifully painted. Cubist schmubist. The compositions were so clear and the colors so pleasing, but it was how he painted. Wood grains, a newspaper, and a lemon, and that care with paint that has stayed with me ever since, and that's how I aspire to paint now. So, many years and paintings later, I was so excited to see the Swan Gris show. As COVID is waning, we hope, it's beyond wonderful to be able to spend an afternoon driving to Baltimore and looking at art. I mean, we're still wearing masks, and the museum is nearly empty of people, and the guards are a little hyper with only each other to talk to. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And we had some friendly guards there. Yeah, no kidding. They couldn't wait, wait to pounce on us and talk to us. <laughs> this idea for this show was Sheila's. And we uh, both enthusiastically agreed to see it as the exhibition is a perfect segue from our previous two shows on Paul Cezanne. The exhibition is a handsome show that is beautifully curated and well elucidated with plenty of pertinent information on the gray walls of the gallery. It was no coincidence that the walls of the gallery are painted gray. The little translation from the French for, for the color gray is gris, a la wan gris. It's a beautiful gray, and it supports the most neutrally toned canvases of the painter we are talking about today, wan gris. Thanks. So, to you, our audience, have you always wanted to understand Cubism? Have you looked for the key, looked in books for the secret code that would unlock the mysteries <laughs> of the 20th century puzzle? Well, maybe this is a protection from me onto you, but for a long time, I never really understood Cubism. And seeing the paintings of Picasso and Brock together with wall text, it just didn't come to me in any intuitive way. You've come to the right place. Well, when I was in my first days in art school, I was in a 2D design class, and the teacher gave us instructions. He said, draw a still life, and there were a few setups in different parts of the room, and then abstract it. I didn't go out for lunch. I just sat there, and I finally asked this guy who was older than me. He was maybe 22, and he was always whistling the Brahms variations on a theme by Haydn under his breath. And I asked him what that meant, to abstract something. He said, well, you take some part of something like the yellow of the lemon or the curve of the glass, and you put them together. You know, that was pretty good. Thank you, Eddie Epstein. Well, that was my start. But it was a long time until I got any more clarity. So the Artist Experience Radio Show will do its very best first episode on Cubism. And instead of a secret code, the key to understanding Cubism is right under our noses at the Baltimore Museum of Art in their exhibit titled 
Color and Illusion, The Still Lives of Juan Gris. Well, this is our 117th show, and we have discussed, reviewed, and shared exhibitions over the years. I have only bought about four catalogs from all the shows that we have gone to. I had to buy the handsome catalog on the works of Juan Gris. Why? The exhibition was that good. The art inspired me. It made me think about creating smart work. Also, the works make one want to go into the studio and get intimate with the surface of a canvas and play with paint. These works are well thought out and, as I mentioned before, intelligent. And I really like to use that word Mm -hmm. about painting. The Spanish painter Juan Gris, who's much less famous than Picasso and Georges Braque, or even than Leger, but he may be finer than either either of them. And he was a good painter. Yes. Yeah, but not my favorite. (laughs) In, In preparation today, we'll begin the show as we began the past few episodes of Artist Experience, quoting John Dewey, who, in his book also titled Artist Experience, identified the origins of art in the experiences of everyday life. The sources of art are similar to the everyday events and scenes which arouse our interest and give us enjoyment as we look and listen. So this is a quote. The fire engine rushing by, the enormous machines excavating enormous holes in the earth, the workers perched high in the air on girders and poking the wood burning on the hearth and watching the darting flames and crumbling coals. These are the experiences that Dewey uses as examples of what art is made of. In this view, the art to be discussed in a program like this is not only the paint and canvas on the wall, and it is certainly not the words, advanced ideas, and abstruse sentences used by the writers and critics. The location of the art is in your experience, in your own perception. Have you ever had the experience of leaving the museum? Say, like the National Gallery of Art, and you go out on the plaza and you look back at the museum, and for a little while, everything looks like a painting. Everything becomes sharp and still. For a little while, your perception has been changed. John Dewey writes that this art art experience shares a continuity with our enjoyment of the burning embers. In art, similar aesthetic experiences are aroused and arranged to make a full orchestrated experience. This is how we will explore the still lives of Juan Gris. Cubism was a revolutionary art movement. Cubism was an innovative approach to presenting a new kind of reality. It began about 1907 to 1908. To make it seem fair, some say that Pablo Picasso and George Brock invented this new vision at the same time. They both never coined the term cubism. As usual, that was left to the critics, and is said that the term cubism was coined by the French art critic Louis Valsels upon seeing a George Brock painting in 1908. Cubism was a new way of abstracting reality, a distillation, a breaking down, a simplification of what the artist saw. As we will talk about later, it was a deconstruction and reconstruction of things in space. The artist broke down the objects and figures into distinct geometric planes. The artist was showing different viewpoints and perspectives of the objects at the same time in the same space. 
There was an emphasis on two-dimensional flatness, and they compromised the illusion of three-dimensional forms and volumes in space. These artists abandoned the devices of real space and the perspectives such as linear perspective and spatial perspective from the conventions of centuries ago since the Renaissance. Firstly, one needs to know the tenets of geometry and symmetry and the concepts of lines becoming shapes and shapes becoming form illusions. That's a, that's a mouthful. It is, it's amazing how students in my art classes really are uncomfortable with math, especially geometry. Designers and artists need to know these subjects. Sorry, but that's the reality. You need to know math and geometry. The concept of a geometric plane on how they are intimately integral in the creation of forms and space to make illusions is a necessary visual concept. The analysis of planes of complex forms in a space, like the human figure in a chair, or a bowl of fruit on a table, or furniture in a room as seen from a distance, are difficult to abstract and simplify. Cubism comes in two forms. Pablo Picasso, George Brock, and Juan Gris engaged in both types of cubism. Firstly, there was analytical cubism, which occurred from 1908 to 1912. This involved analyzing planes in a simple and austere way and designing or interweaving and interlocking planes and lines. These works are often neutral and muted colors of black, white, shades of gray, and some ochres and some browns. The second period was synthetic cubism from 1912 to 1914. This period expanded both the use of more brilliant color in the cubist art and synthetic cubism introduced work that had a variety of media and collage elements that were put on the canvas. The introduction of these collage elements uh, was quite a break from the development of the traditional canvas and Juan Gris' involvement in both these kinds of cubism, analytical and synthetic cubism, are on display in the exhibition. I also read... Uh, Recently, that there's actually a third kind called crystallized cubism or crystal cubism, which r really threw me off. It was like a, a tang tangent of synthetic cubism. And uh, I don't want to get into it because it boggled me. <laughs> In our show last time on Cezanne, we talked about how Cezanne discovered a technique to move the eye, your eye, around the objects in the painting and give them body and fullness, roundness, and volume. We discussed how the eye can focus on only the eye, our eye, can only focus on a tiny area. And in real life, it moves around what we're looking at. And the perceptual process integrates the scanning image into a whole. If you missed that show, you can go back and listen to it. Anyway, Cezanne moved his own eyes around the model or the still life subject in his studio and put brush strokes down in a way that the eye would move around on the painting in a similar way. And in a similar way, with brush strokes of paint, it would construct a volume. But what if the artist broke up that path? What if the artist led the eye around and then threw a paradox in, where the outer surface becomes, let's say, the inner surface, a sort of Mobius effect? Escher did this in a sort of illustrative way. 
Well, Juan Gris plays this trick, and he plays many other tricks, in a most engaging way, turning the tradition of painting inside out. The dislocations cascade down in an exciting rhythm. Your eye follows the surface. It turns a corner, and voila, something totally wrong, totally unexpected pops up. The still life objects are not rendered as rendered as standalone, independent whole objects existing in one state. Your eye, after turning the corner, is suddenly looking from a new perspective. Because we are taught to see perspective, when we start looking at pictures as young people, seeing we're taught to see space on a flat page. And we can reject the image because it doesn't imitate the way things look normally on a page. Or we could go with it, simply because it's so exciting. I remember when I was little, my mother, who wasn't an artist at all, she drew a chair at an angle on a page. And and she drew it in three dimensions so I could see the leg behind the seat of the chair. And I thought it was some kind of miracle. And I kept trying to learn to draw that chair. So writers and critics might provide a justification for the multiple perspectives that make up cubism, something about the nature of our times, and maybe that really has do, does have something to do with it. It gives us something to think about anyway. But I don't think that this is a necessary key to loving these paintings. The key to loving these paintings is to look at them, accept the difficulties, accept the challenge. For as long as there have been great artists, they have been interrupting your paths to beauty. Even Renaissance artists recognized that in beauty there is always something strange. In Cubism, there is a spirit of exploration and a lot of strangeness. Which is in the engagement. Yes. Yeah, you kind of have to maneuver through the visual maze of, of planes and geometries and stuff. Right. You know, in that sense, it grabs you. Mm-hmm. So their first painting in the show, a jar, a bottle, and a glass on a table, is painted in mostly black and white with very strong modeling with shadows, making the objects look like, like they were made of stone or even maybe a mountainous granite formation that resembled a jar, a bottle, and a glass on a table. The jar looks like it's in a cave, and as your eye moves down from the cave to the glass, it becomes a sort of Mobius object, where the exterior surface flows into an interior surface. The objects are splintered into shards. Then the painting, which at the bottom shows a view of a kitchen cabinet from the perspective of a very small child looking up at the counter high above, but when in the middle of the picture your eye passes over the lip of the counter, you're looking down on the still life objects from above. Early viewers were probably mystified. It's so amazing. With each new art movement, we are being challenged to see in a new way. And each new way has been rejected because we are so relieved to get on some solid ground. Like Cezanne feels solid to us now. But imagine when people first saw his painting. So we always have to work to get over our, our objections and at the same time make room for a critical eye. But we get to marvel at it. In the Cezanne Drawing Show at the Museum of Modern Art, the artist Julie Meretu was in a dialogue with the curators to give her observations on Cezanne. 
I was even more insulted that she was given and accepted the torch of Cezanne to carry. Tom and I both watched the video, and we were yelling about what a travesty it was. I refuse. I refuse to put Julie Muretu, both her words and her paintings, in the same category as Cezanne. So you, you understand what I'm saying here. Yes, I do understand what you're saying. It's, it's not a contest. Uh, well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD, Tacoma Radio, 94.3 FM. Today we are discussing the work of the cubist Juan Gris, whose still lives are on view at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The exhibition goes until January 9th, 2022. Well, Juan Gris had a short and tragic life. He was born Jose Victoriano Carmelo Gonzalez Gonzalez Perez. Well, that was a mouthful. Was born in Madrid in 1887. He studied engineering at the Madrid School of Arts and Sciences. As a young artist, he illustrated for periodicals. In 1905, he changed his name to Juan Gris or John the Gray, or John Gray. There is much speculation why he came up with that name, but he certainly shortened, <laughs> shortened it, and, and it's an achromatic, colorful way. Juan Gray, uh, of course, as I just mentioned, is, is John Gray when it's anglicized. In 1906, Gray moved to Paris. In 1909, he and his wife, Lucy Belen, uh, gave birth to their only child, George Gonzalez Gris. In 1913, Juan Gris met Charlotte Augusta Fernanda Herpin, and he left his wife to live with her in another part of Paris. In Paris, he befriended artists and poets, and most notably artists Fernand Leger, uh, Jean uh, Metzinger, as well as George Brock and Pablo Picasso, his compatriot. In 1911, Gris stopped illustrating for the host of periodicals and started painting most feverishly, develop, developing his own personal style. It is about the same time that he became familiar with the mathematical approach to painting introduced by Jean Metzinger. Gris worked in a variety of symmetries and ways, one based on a grid system and the other on a diagonal and more complicated way of seeing planes through a, a triangulation of objects. He was interested in oblique angles of objects in their deconstruction and reconstruction. It is theorized that, in fact, Juan Gris invented the term analytical cubism. His work was well-received, and he had many exhibitions uh, with and without the cubist circle artists in his life. His cubist style evolved, and it became more complex and more synthetic in nature. He was also a great designer of paintings, and in 1924 he, set, uh, he designed sets and costumes for the Ballet Russe and Sergei Diaghilev. He began to elucidate his art theories and geometries and aesthetics. He had given a lot of lectures in uh, 1924, and he had major exhibitions in 1923 and 1925 throughout Europe. Unfortunately, seven years before his death, Gris suffered health episodes involving his heart and kidneys. 
The last few years of his life were particularly difficult and tragic. He had bouts of uremia with various heart issues. He died of kidney failure in 1927 at the age of 40. He leaves us with a great portfolio of Cubist works from that epoch. His sense of design, planning, and products are beautiful, and this exhibition in Baltimore has some of the greatest works from his Cubist periods. Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with our co-host, Tom Sinakis. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio, 94.3 FM. Today, Tom and I are discussing a beautiful exhibition of the still lifes of Juan Gris at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The exhibition is on until January 9th, 2022. So one of the paradoxes in Cubism, and in Juan Gris in particular, is that he takes you in and out of a comprehensive space. Something that is part of an object turns into a flat, positive shape. But then it can be seen as a negative, a hole in the composition, or in a black shape that echoes that hole but remains as background and em- emerges at the bottom of the painting as a table leg. Since these are all still lifes, the titles are useless in identifying each of the paintings. One I'm taking time over. It caught my attention because he uses dots, a technique of optical blending, which was called pointillism, referring to the paintings of the Impressionists. The dots of paint in the Impressionists were used to create optical effects. When they're viewed at a distance, the dots become subtle color changes which shimmer in the eye. Gris made patterns or decorations of the dots within a shape, but also with optical blending changes the color of the dots so they make a new color when you step back. The dots are also used to break up the surfaces or to overlap a shape, to create shadows, and to combine surfaces. Whereas Picasso, as a cubist, is playing in the way an ogre in his cave is playing with grimness. 
Brock is wonderfully playing with broad three-dimensional space, and also he's playing with texture. Gree is playing with visual delight. They're just so much fun to explore, so take your time. Picasso was no colorist. Once he said, well, if you run out of green, use red, or something like that. (laughs) Using a lot of color doesn't make you a colorist. It's the feeling produced by the way the colors interact with each other, the joy in letting your eye and your mind fill with color. I'd best liken it to a delicious taste or the perfume of flowers. Brock used earth tones, which equal in every way to the brighter colors of the spectrum. Gree could use that delicious Venetian red against a rich gray-green. He balanced the gray tones against the more vibrant colors. In each of his paintings, his colors are carefully chosen. There's a sense that most of his competitions were determined, predetermined before he went to the canvas, and the color carefully thought out so that the finished paintings are made with a lot of planning and forethought. He haunted museums, but not in order to direct his style, but to fill himself with possibilities. He never gave up on chiaroscuro like the other cubits. Gris learned about planes in space from Cezanne, but unlike Cezanne, with his gradations of warm and cool colors, he used gradations of value to produce form, if form was what he wanted. So John Dewey made these brilliant statements, and I'm going to quote them. They're too good. When masses are balanced, colors harmonized, and lines and planes meet and intersect fittingly, perception will be serial in order to grasp the whole, and each sequential act builds up and reinforces what went before. Even at first glance, there is the sense of qualitative unity. There is form, a cumulative effect to secure the needed continuity. The accumulated experience must be be such as to create suspense and the anticipation of resolution. The factor of resistance is worth a special notice. Without internal tension, there would be a fluid rush to this straightaway mark. There would be nothing that could be called development and fulfillment. The existence of resistance defines the place or intelligence in the production of an object of fine art. The perceiver, as well as artist, has to perceive, meet, and overcome problems. Otherwise, appreciation is transient and overweighted with sentiment. This, these statements also have everything to do with music. How music, think about Beethoven and how he sets up a situation and then he works around it and he goes towards it and he pulls back from it and then finally there's the resolution and then you've been on the journey. That's absolutely true and thank you for sharing that connection there with another art form. Mm. So the Baltimore Museum also has an ongoing exhibit of Matisse's work from the Cohn collection. The Cohn sisters, Clarabelle and Etta Cohn, were the fifth and ninth of the 13th children of the German-Jewish immigrants. They originally were Cohns, but they changed the name to Cohn because they thought it sounded more American. The family moved to North Carolina 
where their brothers became rich in the textile factories, the cone mills. Clarabelle went to medical school and worked as a researcher, and Edda was a pianist, and they became collectors of contemporary art. While their collection remained private until Edda's death, Edda occasionally lent pieces to museums to exhibit. Clarabelle had willed her, her paintings to Edda and requested that these paintings should be transferred to the Baltimore Museum of Art if there was an interest in modern art. I love that. The bulk of the collection eventually went to the, that museum by Edda's will, and a new wing was added to the museum for the Cone Collection in 1957. The collection consists of approximately 3,000 items that the Cone Sisters had acquired over it. 50 years. It's not only French art, but American art as well, including over a thousand American prints, illustrated books, and drawings. Among these were cloth goods, costume jewelry, tables, chairs, and cabinets. The Cone Sisters' items also include Coptic fragments, Middle Eastern silks, 18th century jewelry, 19th century furniture, Oriental rugs, African adornment, Japanese prints, Egyptian sculpture, and antique ivory carvings. So this is to give you an idea of what is in the Cone Collection. And it's used by art students and scholars from around the world as a research source. The estimated value of the Cone Collection in 2002 was close to a billion dollars. Oh, that's astronomical. It's, wow. it's wonderful. <laughs> they were shot. I hate to say it because they be they became friends of Gertrude Stein, and she always downplayed the sisters as being shoppers with tastes, but they do seem like shoppers. <laughs> and and, uh, and when they were introduced to Gertrude Stein, they were able to buy paintings of Matisse and Cezanne and Americans like Theodore Robinson. Eventually, their paintings covered the walls of their adjoining apartments, and even including in the bathroom. So they had excellent, adventurous eyes for modern art, but it's our privilege and pleasure to see their collection in Baltimore. Lucky us. And of course, that's what I did. We did. <laughs> yeah. The Cubist artist subjects are, are quite traditional, they are looking at objects of everyday life, nothing out of the ordinary, really. They are putting subjects on a table where they usually and commonly recognize spaces and places. They can be fruit, a newspaper, a guitar, a mandolin, violin, the coffee pot, the siphon, the pipe, or the cigarette. And you recognize them. When the artists are portraying with the figure, they are usually seated or like in an action, like in playing a guitar or drinking a beverage. In Cubism, the visual game is how these artists deconstruct the forms of things from everyday life and how they divide them into various planes and various axes and whether they are diagonal, horizontal, or vertical. The development of these works creates a visual challenge for the artist in designing the canvas and how the planar pieces work together in line, shape, form, color, or lack of color, and texture and pattern. And I think that's the, I use the word game because I think it, it is. Uh -huh. it's, a, it's a visual game, and you have to weave yourself through these to make them out, and I think it's a very beautiful 
kind of game in that sense. The geometries and how they are painted defy a real space. The perspectives are complicated as one can see the same object in the same painting from various views. Thus, the everyday objects get a whole fresh look with a fresh cubist eye. Mm. Well, something something that I, I'm really trying to highlight is the innovative use of color in each of the artists we're talking about. The contribution of Juan Gris to Cubism, you could compare it to the contribution of the Venetians to the work of the Florentines and their use of color because of his balancing luscious color with gray tones, something that Bonard did also in a different way, using grays to surround and cause more vibrant color to shine. And here's Matisse, this explaining his use of color. Okay. <laughs> so he says, If on a clean canvas I put at intervals patches of blue, green, and red, with every touch that I put on, each of those previously laid on loses, loses in importance. Say I have to paint an interior. I see before me a wardrobe. It gives me a vivid sensation of red. I put on the canvas that particular red that satisfies me. A relation is now established between this red and the paleness of the canvas. When I put on, besides a green and also a yellow to represent the floor, between this green and the yellow and the color of the canvas, there will be still further relations. But these different tones diminish one another. It is necessary that the different tones I use be balanced in such a way that they do not destroy one another. To secure that, I have to put my ideas in order. The relationship between tones must be instituted in such a way that they are built up instead of being knocked down. A new combination of colors will succeed to the first one and will give the wholeness to my conception. It's pretty hard to follow, isn't it? Matisse had so many colors available, and yet he had to develop a system. Something Matisse did was to always work on white. At the end of the day, he would paint white over the parts of the painting that he was dissatisfied with. He'd use a quick-drying white. So the next day, he would come in and have a fresh white surface to work on. Matisse's paintings always look so fresh and effortless, but they weren't. They were struggles made to look effortless. The white is why they looked that way. He separated his colors so that they didn't influence each other, unlike Cezanne. Cezanne would let the canvas show through or the paper show through to give light from behind, or in his watercolors, the paper serves as light, sometimes as surface sometimes to direct the eye. Cezanne considered a paper, the paper, a major part of the composition, and he worked with a limited palette of 18 colors. These colors had on his palette an entire scale of tonal gradations. You, you understand when we were talking about tonal gradations from, from white to black. He would begin with light neutral tones and then build up the intensity. This made it possible to accomplish his landscapes in plain air. Juan Gris sometimes painted li lines around 
areas of color to separate them from influencing each other or to draw a third dimension on a plane. Well, thank you for that about Matisse and the use of white. I had no idea about that. Uh, that's very, very interesting. And, and, and I think it's interesting to see the difference. Here we have Matisse, Cezanne, and now we're going to talk about Gris and their different uses of color. Well, I want to tell our listeners first that a limited palette is actually a very good way to paint. The fun of painting is in the mixing of the color. The joy is is making the colors and, and starting with just those few colors. A simple palette can be the primary colors, black, white, a few neutral colors like ochres and numbers, and then maybe a and crimson, and maybe violet. So you don't really need a lot of colors to make a lot of colors. In Juan Gris' case, he is using these neutral tones and adding whites to make tints and black to make shades in a variety of tonal ranges. And he uh, would add a, a warm color to warm it up, like a yellow or orange or red to a gray. And then he would take uh, the gray and then add a cool color to it, like a blue or green, to cool the neutral color down. Well, think about the artists of the ancient days. The artists of Egypt, China, in Rome, and in Greece, and, and, and definitely the pre-Columbian artists, in Central and, and, and South America. They had a very limited palette, but they also could create mm -hmm. a huge array of brilliant mm -hmm. color. And I think a lot of beginning painting students think you have to buy every color in the book and put it on your palette. And that's really not the way to really do it. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, we're going to get into color theory a little here, but you know it kind of destroys color when you start mixing all these colors together. So when you go to the exhibition, you will not be seduced visually by, let's say, brilliant color. Synthetic cubism was the start of the cubists to explore color, and Pablo Picasso especially delved into color, I'd say a little more than Juan Gris. And there's few paintings in the exhibit that explode with color. I could maybe think three or four at, uh, right now. And I'm t when I'm talking about color, I'm talking about pure prismatic color. Um, but those with color that particularly stand out are, for instance, Still Life with an Open Window Place in Avignon from uh, 1915 is a beautiful painting with beautiful colors. It's got these gorgeous electric blue and it's got some orange in it. That's a beautiful painting. But the other painting, Grapes, from 1913, is probably one of the most least successful paintings in the exhibition. It's kind of splotchy, and it's, it, it's not as well balanced. So Juan Gris, to me, doesn't really succeed in brilliant color. No, he doesn't. No. I mean, that that's to me, and I think that's uh -huh. the strength of Juan Gris, is how he kills pure color or prismatic color. I, I mean, and this is the this is when I'm talking about prismatic color, I'm talking about the color that comes from the the, the light spectrum or the color spectrum. Juan Gris uses neutral tones as beautifully as any other artist I know. Neutral tones are the grays, which technically is not a neutral tone, but we'll call it one for this explanation but we have umbers and ochres and neutral reds like the venetian red which is sort of a terracotta red color and let me kind of explain exactly what technically a neutral tone is and here's a little color theory for our, our listeners <laughs> a neutral tone is the three primary colors mixed 
with another primary color of the same. So it takes a bit more of that third primary color to make the difference. So if you want to make a yellow ochre color, now you could buy the tube, but if you want to make it yourself, it is a yellow ochre is like a golden yellow color, um, but not a metallic golden. It's a, it's a flat neutral color. And it's red plus blue plus yellow plus a little more yellow. That's how you make a yellow ochre. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make like a chocolate brown color, you use red plus blue and yellow, but you add a little more blue Yay. to make a chocolate brown, which would be an umberish color, okay? So Juan Gris must have enjoyed playing with these neutral tones on the canvas because they're absolutely beautiful. Black, grays, brown, and ochre tones are throughout these canvases, and they're just so gorgeous. And a neutral tone also mutes any pure color. So if you add a neutral tone to a blue, it's going to mute it. And what does that mean? A neutral tone kills the pure, intense, saturated, concentrated color of the spectral prismatic color. I hope I'm following this. So a neutral color kills the power of a pure prismatic color. And Juan Gris is not about explosive, expressive color. Gris gives you a host of these colors on the canvases, and there's still something wonderful about a neutral color, which a lot of people might just think is boring, but not in his case. He warms the colors. He cools them. Uh, his canvases display a quite a wide variety of neutral tones, and they work in great harmony. That's another word we need to talk about, the harmony of these canvases. He will mute a prismatic color with a neutral color and tone it down. So when Juan Gris is breaking up the forms into planes he, by these subtle changes of neutral tones next to each other, so he creates this destruction of the form by putting two neutral tones of slightly different values next to each other. And there's a lot of play in these positive and negative spaces and the cool and the warm neutral tones. I'm amazed how many different kinds of grays you can put on a canvas and get away with it. <laughs> and I wonder if this has something to do with his personality. You know, this is something that's totally tangential, but was he kind of a neutral, kind of dull, muted kind of guy or what? I don't know, but he was so good at these neutral tones. And the dullness of the colors is is still what is so beautiful about it. And he used it expertly uh, in, in, in his way. Expertly, excuse me. Additionally, Juan Gris uses several kinds of black. Now, yes, that's an important This is the other thing, because mm -hmm. black... You know, there's a lot of kinds of blacks, and you can have a very, very, very dark blue-black that is almost like a dark gray, and he plays around with these blacks. I mean, he uses black and white lines around cam around the canvases, delineate objects, which Sheila had talked about, and uh, he uses white. But do you notice, Sheila, he never uses a brilliant, brilliant white. That's right. Because that's, right. that's going to really grab your eye uh -huh. with all these neutral tones. It's slightly toned down. Yes. It's very subtle. Uh -huh. I mean, it's close to white, but it's not like it doesn't stand out with a brilliant white. There's right. no massive shape of whites in his canvas. Yeah. It's kind of might be an egg white, a cream white, but it's not a brilliant, pure, bam, 
big area of titanium white. You never see that in those canvases. It's true. It's true. And so this, the exhibition is, is really glorious. And, and, and showing Juan Gris' strength as a painter and the use of neutral tones, I think, is a great lesson for any artist mm. that doesn't know how to use neutral tones. Well, and I, I also want to just congratulate you on bringing out how many blacks there are. There are many blacks, and I was never told that until kind of recently I discovered, oh, there's peach black, and there's lamp black, which is a carbon black, and then there's pearl black, which is green. There's And when you look at yeah. those Wandry paintings, you see there's not just one black. Yeah, it's, just, it's amazing yeah. how subtle mm. he plays with these neutral tones. Yeah. So... Uh, the contemporary artist Roy Lichtenstein, well, he's now not alive anymore, but in my life, he's a contemporary artist. Yes. <laughs> he uses the Bende dots from the old printing technique, and he was surely standing on Juan Gris' shoulders, finding ever new ways of making optical effects that serve his purpose. I've talked about Lichtenstein be- before because... Once he built a vocabulary of comic book techniques, he began to use them to explore the history of art, and Juan Gris was a perfect place for him to land. In fact, Gris set it up for Lichtenstein, who went through a whole Cubist period in the 70s, and even uses sand, as George Brock did, for texture. Texture. He reprised the Cubist still lifes of lemons, glasses, musical instruments, checkerboards, and pipes, and using only black, white, red, yellow, and blue, and occasionally green. He produced still lifes that are handsome, they're witty, and very unsettled statements of the history of art. But his Cubist paintings are to die for. They're so neat, and they're so... It's like he's reaching out to Juan Gris, and you know, giving him credit. It's, it's so an great. homage. It's Wonderful. an homage. Good work. That's good. So, and there's another contemporary painter, Richard Diebenkorn, who used some of the ideas of the Cubists, but in a very different way. He used planes in space, but just when you feel like you've gained some traction on that space, he uses a line or a blurring of a shape that contradicts where you thought you were going, and you're thrown off balance until finally the painting resolves itself in your mind. He also sometimes painted paper and stuck it onto the canvas, which is a gift from Matisse. Well, I think this is so great, this, uh, what you just said, about how these artists beyond Cubism in a more contemporary way in our lifetime really were looking at the Cubists and studying them. And I think that's what um, all artists need to do. You know, once I, uh, I had a student that said she didn't need to know about art history, and I told her she was doing herself a great disservice mm-hmm. by not looking at what people had done before. And here, Richard Debecorn, a great artist who we've talked about many times on the show, and Roy Lichtenstein, another great artist, who looking at the Cubists and Juan Gris, so on and so forth. Another thing I want to talk about, and thank you, Sheila, is you used the word visual vocabulary. And that is a really important word in this particular case. Juan Gris has a definite visual vocabulary, which we've talked about in the neutral tones and stuff like that. And I think as artists maintain, developing artists, 
maintain and attain a, a, a visual look, that's the vocabulary that they're going to go with as a strength. And you see this in this exhibition with Juan Gris in Baltimore for sure. In synthetic cubism, the artists began to incorporate collage elements into their works with this new and unusual application of added media onto the canvas, which Sheila just talked about, George Brock using sand, and that's absolutely correct. The word collage is a fascinating word that I believe some people get confused, and they confuse it with the word montage. Although related, they're two different things. Collage, coincidentally, was used about the same time in Germany by the artists of the Dada movement, which started in Germany, Dada, and it was taking found objects and often paper products and gluing them to the surfaces as well. Now, this is an interesting kind of economic possibly possible uh, reason, but the Dada artists were creating very austere works in the post polemic Germany after World War I. They lost the war, and they were in pretty bad shape, that country. So materials and money were hard to find, and these artists resorted to basic materials, like found objects and various elements glued to a surface. Well, the French call it papier collé, and the uh, labels at the museum call it that as well, which literally means paper glued. And colle, or cola, in French, Italian, and Greek means glue. You must use a kind of glue to adhere something to another surface. That's what collage is. What kinds of glues can you use? Well, the ancients used honey or liqueurs. Uh, and for centuries, they've used dairy products such as milk and eggs, boiled animal skins from horses, rabbits, and fish and certain liquids from plants uh, that have a stickiness, and boiled vegetables can be used. So in contemporary art, we can use epoxies, silicones, and other chemicals, which are sometimes caustic and actually dangerous to use. So there's many kinds of glues that you can use. Well, for those of us that like to visit the Estelada counter at the mall, and when you shop online for those fancy skin products to help your skin, yes, this is the Artist Experience Radio Show, but we're going a little tangential here. Well, you might want to buy a skin product with collagen in it. You get it? Here we go. It has the same root word as cola, meaning glue. Well, collagen is the protein in the skin that keeps the connective tissue and cells of the skin together for that supple, smooth, and pliable skin. <laughs> no, that's not how I do it. I've never bought a collagen product in my life. I just drink a gallon of olive oil a week. And so there's my answer to the collagen mystery. So the point is, these are all related. So there we have a little, um, you know, a skin lesson as well. Well, the montage is a little different. A montage is a collection of images in a composition. A montage does not necessarily use glue to keep it together on the surface. It often does not in involve glue at all. A montage can be created with traditional photography, film, digital photography, and a host of media combinations, and glue is not always one of them. In fact, 
in creating a montage glue when it's it's not used so we we've got you can use it but you don't have to and that's the difference in collage in collage you must use glue all right <laughs> you must use glue and Juan Gris glues books uh sleeves newspapers periodicals letters wallpaper i love that wallpaper in those paintings tissue paper and craft paper in his canvases but they are thoughtful and well placed in his composition and he uses glue and papier collé all right (laughs) one thing that i love that juan greed does is he paints letters he 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 uses type, you know, but ah, he also uses that. Yeah. that in his paintings as design elements. I love that. So beautiful. So he also knew how to letter. Yes, and you, you have to do that well. Yes, yeah, you do. If you get sloppy with that, that gets smalty. That's true. <laughs> so I think that Wangri is the easiest of the Cubists to understand. His works have clarity, and in that way, they're completely reassuring. They have design and composition and surprise. And, Tom, as you said, they're intelligent. You can relax and be sure that everything is as it was meant to be. And they're completely enjoyable, like a good meal, a good meal for your eyes and your mind. The dessert is that it leads to the next generation of 20th century artists exploring innovations of color, space, and flatness. Well, there's a wonderful intimacy in this exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art featuring the works and still lifes of Juan Gris. It's a nice-sized exhibition in that you can look, sit, and enjoy the work and not feel overwhelmed, like it's one of these huge exhibitions that wear you out. This is one of these exhibitions that also is beautifully curated. Do not be fooled. The artist Wang Gri is painting simple everyday objects in a very well-designed and sophisticated way. Abstraction in the form of cubism is not easy. The mathematics and geometry in this form of visual communication is complex. Though there are dualities you need to see in these works. There's deconstructions and reconstructions on the same canvas. There is a simplification of objects that are almost difficult to decipher when they're visually distilled. There are multiple perspectives and views in a new kind of reality. Overall, there is a pleasure in the paint, the surfaces of the media, and the magic that goes in combining them all. Juan Gris was dead serious about these works, and yet there's visual play, visual puzzles, and visual mystery. These combinations make for a very enjoyable way to look at art, and we invite you to see Color and Illusion, The Still Lives of Juan Gris at the Baltimore Museum of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. Visit their website at artbma.org, and the exhibition is on and runs through January 9, 2022. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>